I'm Betsy Reed, and this is The Discomfort Practice, where I talk to creatives, activists, leaders, scientists, and a host of others about discomfort, about the role it's played in their lives, who they are and what they do in the world, and the value of discomfort in helping us move forward as a society. Discomfort is just the edge of your comfort zone, and on the other side are superpowers. So settle yourself in, and let's get uncomfortable. Dr. Terence Lester is an activist and scholar who seeks to bring God's justice to those suffering from poverty and racism. Terence had to learn to walk again after a horrific car wreck, all while getting his PhD in public policy on helping those who are homeless. The founder of lovebeyondwalls.org and the Dignity Museum is also the author of I See You, How Love Opens Our Eyes to Invisible People, as well as the book When We Stand, The Power of Seeking Justice Together. In his latest book, All God's Children, How Confronting Buried History Can Build Racial Solidarity, he says, the more you understand someone's history, the better you can see their humanity. This is true for individuals as well as for society at large. And it all sounds so accomplished, but this is even more amazing when you know more of Terence's story. At the age of 16, he was a high school dropout and a member of a gang. He was rebellious and lived on the streets and even attempted to take his own life. At 20, he was arrested, and it was when he was in jail that he met a man who talked to him about life decisions. He actually then became a Christian and devoted his life to service to others. Three ideas drive Terence. One, anyone can make a difference. Two, we don't live forever. And three, it's worth dedicating one's life to ensuring no one feels invisible. And I'd say that explains his life and work quite neatly. So he has done many campaigns on behalf of the poor and been featured in USA Today, Black Enterprise, Essence, and Reader's Digest. His sermons and all of his podcast interviews, he's a very accomplished speaker, have been viewed and listened to by millions of people globally. He's appeared on the Today Show, Good Morning America, CBS News, NBC, Upworthy, and The Bright Side with Katie Couric. He's delivered countless sermons and speeches at conferences, churches, and schools around the U.S., focusing on how public policy, poverty, race, and faith intersect. His approach combines storytelling and digital media to help illustrate social justice issues with practical strategies to solve things like racial injustice and homelessness. In 2016, Terrence led the March Against Poverty, where he walked from Atlanta, Georgia, where he's based, to the White House, over 800 miles, to bring attention to homelessness in the U.S. He's received many awards, and he is a tireless campaigner, but advocate, and I'd say preacher, for things that many of us don't want to think about. We want to turn away from. We don't want to look at them because they make us uncomfortable. Things like homelessness. So I'm really pleased today to welcome Terrence to the Discomfort Practice Podcast. It is a pleasure to have him here. I've followed his work for quite some time, and we've been trying to arrange this interview since August 2023. So it's a delight to finally have you here, Terrence. Welcome. Yeah, I... Wow, thank you so much for uh, such a warm introduction. Um, 
many people don't know this about me. I'm ambiverted, right? And so like I can be extroverted uh, when I need to things that I really focus my attention on with uh, passion, like, you know, advocacy, activism and all of that. But I'm really introverted. And, um, you know, part of me just sitting and listening to the story, I always get chills because I'm I'm deeply grateful for the both and Um you know, like people read about like things that I've done or the books I've written, but I, I never see myself necessarily through those lenses. I always like try to stay tapped into the origination story of like, you know, the discomfort, right? We're talking about discomfort. Um, the things that drove me to discover um, the parts of myself that were hidden and the things that shaped me into being who I am. And so like that grounds me, never forgetting the journey itself, but never forgetting the little boy who was was hoping um, to one day overcome the circumstances that he was in or the young man that was trying to find his way. And so while I, I'm deeply appreciative, I, I just want to acknowledge the fact that, you know, uh, for me, it's all of those things are just an outward expression of me uh, being on the journey. So thank you for having me. I'm excited to um, to be here. Mm. And also thank you for bringing the term ambivert probably to people who don't know it, because I, I can relate. No one would believe me that I'm an ambivert, but those are my <laughs> closest inner circle. I call myself a performative extrovert. So yeah, oh, yeah, I can yeah, really, yeah. I can really, it's it's a good skill to have. But yeah, I'm oh, yeah. I'm very quiet in my home life. I just wander around and smile and like bake cakes and fluff my couch cushions. And just you know, live a blissed yeah. out life. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I the observational life, contemplative, uh, deep reflective. Uh, type of uh, of of life is like mostly where I find myself uh, in safety, right? Mm. Um, but I like you said that term, performative extrovert, which is a skill yeah. <laughs> because you need it to navigate in different spaces, right? Yeah, you need it to deliver the mission, but people don't necessarily see that it's you delivering the mission, not necessarily that you get your energy or your safety from speaking to a crowd. Yeah, I totally understand. And what you said about the the contemplative life, I think, I mean, people listening to a podcast called The Discomfort Practice can probably relate to that because I know a lot of us <laughs> are quite contemplative types. So that probably landed with a few people. So yeah, thank you for that juicy gift at the beginning because it's, yeah, it's a good reminder. Where do you find your safety? Find your safety there by all means, but also... Yeah. When it comes time to get out and speak and deliver the mission, you know, you got to do what you got to do. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Well, when I put together this initial sort of framing of what what I wanted to talk to you about, I titled it How Love Can Open Our Eyes to Things We'd Rather Not See. And I'm going to trust Betsy of three months ago that that is probably still a good focus. But let's just sort of wander through what that means, because obviously there are lots of aspects of your work that. I think we're both trying to bring love to the world, bring love to whatever our mission is in the world. And sometimes that takes us to uncomfortable places, to having to see things we'd rather not see because it's more loving to face the truth 
than to ignore them and pretend everything's nice. So my first question to every guest is always the same. And it's what's an uncomfortable moment that shaped who you are and what you do in the world. And it might be a tough one to choose just one. So you can have a couple if you want, but over to you. Yeah. A tough moment. As you mentioned in my bio, I had a moment where I I dropped out of school um, when I was a teenager. If you can imagine growing up in a house or a family that was littered with violence and rage and abuse and all of the things that makes one feel frightened, mm-hmm. especially as a as a child or uh, a developing adult, right? Um, you know, there are many ways in which the emotional weight of that caused me to not be able to focus in school. And so like, I remember days going to school where like, I would totally be disconnected because I had so much, uh, you know, weight and pain and trauma stemming from my social location and educators really couldn't even connect with me or understand why I was disconnecting from the lesson. It wasn't that I didn't have brilliance and intellect and things like that. I had barriers in the way. And I never forget I the day I made the decision of uh stop to stop going to school. I got mm-hmm. up out of my chair, pushed myself away from the desk. At this term, time I was in the alternative school. And I marched out of the front door of the school because it was an open campus and you could do that. Um, and the teachers couldn't do anything. And and so like I walked away from the school and my friends joined me and we're walking down the street. And this guy experiencing homelessness yelled over to our group. Um, hey, you know, I, I still remember this like vividly. We were less than 100 yards away from the school. And so my friends are still walking, chit-chatting, and I it kind of caught my attention. So it was almost like a, you know, like a, a play, a stage play. You have an aside where uh, an actor turns away and he has his monologue and it's kind of like singular focus on this one particular individual. Well, I turned away. I walk up to this, this stranger who became a friend and he was stumbling, looked like he hadn't showered, the whole nine and he pointed back at that school and he says uh is that your school i say yes he says whatever you do don't stop going to school or you're going to end up like me he looked himself mm-hmm. up and down um this guy had no idea that some days i was sleeping in parks and some days i would have to find places to stay with my friends uh because i too as a teenager, what experiencing uh, homelessness was experiencing that uh, from time to time. And he says, one day you're going to be a leader. He just said that random. And uh, I did eventually stop going to school, but that conversation never left my mind. And the year passed and the class I was supposed to graduate, graduate with walked and they went on. And I was left with the option, what do I do? Do I, you know, try to get a GED or figure out education or path, or do I figure out a way to to get back in school? And luckily, uh, some way the principals at the school 
I started learning about my story. My mother got involved again, advocated for me. I was able to get back into my high school and I had to go back to school as a fifth year senior. Oh, it was the most embarrassing time of my life um, because people asked, I thought, you know, what happened? Didn't you graduate last year and all of that stuff? But for me, it was a an act of um, I wanted to do this for myself. And I went back to school. I was clear minded. I, I was focused. I still had a lot of hardships going on, but I was resolved in my heart not to replicate or duplicate what I had seen done in my family as far as like uh, the men. And so it was mm-hmm. it was uncomfortable, but I did it. And that became the foundation of how I got to where I am today. Wow. And I love that it was almost like the homeless man who came over to you was an oracle who saw yeah. your future and told you exactly what was going to happen. Have you thought of it that way ever? Is that kind of why you yeah. did it? Or you're like, yeah. that man yeah. he saw me. Yeah, he saw me like and, you know, we talk I talk a lot about being seen, um, belonging. Uh, I talk sometimes about how belonging itself is revolutionary. Right. Um, that it ha- it's belonging is an act of justice. And part of not being seen in the environment that I was growing up in and part of not being seen by educators and sometimes even in the context of my own community created a pain itself and also a longing, right? A longing for wanting to be seen. And what ended up happening was I had people like these messengers or angels or what you would uh, describe as oracles come into my life briefly and to see me that gave me an opportunity to see myself, to see my own sense of worth. And that freed me up to say, oh, like, wow, there are people all around me who need to be seen. And I want to live my life in that way. It makes me want to ask then, I mean, we're going to get into obviously homelessness. People don't want to see it. So a lot of people don't see it. And these are actual human beings who then are completely unseen. But What's the negative impact of that when people do feel unseen? You know, just to give people a picture, what does that do to a human being to feel permanently unseen? Yeah. Mm. Well, I'll answer that question in in two parts. One, man, um, I still, you know, like I feel the emotions like arising like at this very moment because I still remember what it's like to be in the midst of suffering right Mm -hmm. and have someone look away or justify your suffering or treat you as though you are invisible and that's damaging to a person's spirit in the way that they see themselves being connected to community so it's a disruption socially, right? Um, it also disrupts you um, on the inside, right? Where you are constantly uh, trying to find a rational grounding to understand why you disconnect. And so like you, um, in many ways, can adopt 
the ways in which people have treated you and you start to self-reject. So people reject you and now you are in a place where you you see yourself not fitting in certain places and now you're self-rejecting yourself. And so like there's an emotional inward bar- battle that you you go go through and you're trying to search and find the place that you belong. Um, when I was doing my uh, PhD, uh, I remember going back and forth with my dissertation chair because I, I wanted to do something as a creative component to the written material and the scholarship and stuff like that. And I asked if I could do a documentary to accompany um, my dissertation. And she was like, well, what methodology and all these things? And I was like, I would use uh, like an ethno cinema um, uh, methodology where I would go over uh, to the state where I did my research, which is the state of Tennessee, and I would live on the streets and I would do these interviews, but I wanted to document um, the people who were unhoused, who were being affected. And so I found this found this, um, this policy problem. Uh, Tennessee became the first state in the United States to uh, make living outside or sleeping outside a class E felony, which is punishable up to six years. And so I started to wonder, uh, why is it that uh, when these decisions are being made uh, in the political process, we don't hear from the stakeholders or those who are actually being affected by the policy. And so my questions was like, do people who are unhoused, you know, have a, a critical analysis of what it means to have this law or do they have a critique about this law? Where, where are their voices? And then I started to wonder, how does this actual policy affect their sense of self-worth in real time? And what does that mean for the community around them and how their community responds now that it has been criminalized and legalized to literally ban or publicly sanitize their existence, right? And then thirdly, how does this actually disrupt a person who is unhoused or keep them from, from being a part of what ML King describes as the beloved community? And so when I got over there, I lived on the streets uh, for uh, eight days. I traveled to four cities because I wanted different perspectives. But when I would ask them, this community, about how this policy was affecting their sense of worth, I would hear things like, you know, it makes me feel bad or I, I feel like I I don't exist or um I remember this one guy, he was describing his suffering in a way that suggested that he would rather be not be here mm-hmm. because he can't find a place that considered to be home. And, you know, even in my research, I was wrestling with this idea of how do, how do we actually describe home, right? Um Sometimes homelessness itself is defined by a lack of a physical location or address, but home, the intangibility of home is a place where you feel seen, accepted and belong. And, you know, time and time again, people would say, uh, talk about the mistreatment being put out of restaurants for trying to reuse the restroom and, and feeling like the vein of their existence was a, a quote unquote virus, someone said. I feel like I'm a virus that people are trying to get rid of. You know, you would hear these very crucial components of how what you're asking me, how does seeing another person in this way 
harm their sense of self-worth. Yeah. It it makes a person feel invisible to the point where they don't feel like they belong. And belonging itself is a is the at the very core and fabric of what it means to be human. Wow reach <laughs> what a beautiful answer and what a, a great dive into actually things that i did want to talk to you about so whew, thank you for that so then belonging and being seen you work on that on a public policy level and on an advocacy level but also you've touched on just how important it is to the human psyche but also to community like how does community, how do we all collectively benefit from ensuring that people are seen and do feel like they belong, who we otherwise would treat like the virus or just turn a blind eye to? Because it's more comfortable for us to not have to, to go there, either because we can't give them the empathy that we might need to give them, or we just don't want to imagine ourselves in that situation. So it's just easier to ignore it and shut down the discomfort. But what benefit are we missing out on by actually letting love take us to those uncomfortable places of seeing the thing we don't want to see of bringing belonging to the person we don't understand or don't want to be. Yeah. In 2019, um, our organization love beyond walls, we started, you mentioned it earlier, the dignity museum, uh, it became the first museum in the U S housing, the small shipping container that addresses the subject of homelessness. And so it's immersive, it has stations and, you know, video and audio and uh, the stories that are captured there. We uh, consider them courageous stories of oral history, right, of people wanting to share uh, their journey uh, and how they actually uh, arrived in the plight of homelessness or how they have over overcome the plight, right? And so I'll never forget, we had this um, this school reach out. They brought you know, hundreds of kids and uh, we're walking them through the museum. I'm doing a guided tour and I play this story and uh, it's a story of a, a veteran who had served his country and he was talking about, you know, when it gets 32 degrees outside, how he has to put four blankets down and four on top and sleep by exhaust because he doesn't know the safest place to stay. And he, he talked about how grateful he was each morning to wake up, you know, regardless of what he was going through. He talked about how sometimes he wears the same pair of clothes for nine days. And he says this phrase, once I take them off, that's it. And there was this kid listening to this. And he was just taking it all in. And this kid was active when he first got in there. And then like this particular story, for some reason, he resonated with it and after the clip plays i say did you take anything from that because i always want people to be proximate in how they understand someone's story uh versus how they have perceived them right and so this kid opens his mouth and he says i can't believe it my parents taught me to fear poor people hmm. But right now I'm sitting here and this man is so grateful and even in great grateful in ways that I haven't been. And all of the, the other kids look at him and one by one, they start sharing. And, you know, you ask a question of how important it is for us to see people. 
I think sometimes seeing other people and not like in an ableistic sense, but like affirming someone, not noticing someone, being aware of someone's presence and their humanity and their inherent worth and value and, and dignity, right? Opens us up to also be seen. Mm. And I think that part of it makes us afraid. That part of being vulnerable makes us afraid. You, the discomfort practice being uncomfortable and allowing ourselves to be seen in, in ways that makes us vulnerable where we can truly connect because true connection happens at the intersection of vulnerability and courage, vulnerability and openness, vulnerability and belonging, vulnerability and empathy, vulnerability and all of the components that gives us a platform or uh, the types of connection needed to build what we all should be striving for relationship, right? Because being seen is all about community. It's all about how we see ourselves interconnected um, using the uh, the framing of ML King, interconnected, uh, interrelated, interdependent of one another, right? Seeing, he uses this uh, phraseology, the world, how seeing the world as our address. And if the world is our address, anybody I come in contact with is neighbor. What is a neighbor? Someone I'm in pr- I'm present with, someone I can have proximity with, you know, and my neighbor doesn't doesn't necessarily have to be like me. <laughs> it doesn't have to emerge from the same social location that I emerged from. My neighbor is a gift um, given by humanity for me to be in relationship with. And, and once I really understood that and get other people to understand that, people let their guards down. What does it mean to let your guard down to fully hear someone's full story? And not categorize them or define them in a brief moment that you see them on the street holding the sign. What if you allowed yourself to imagine or go to a place where you be proximate enough, uh, and I'm talking about cognitive proximity, proximate enough to someone's uh, story that they're verbalizing to you to understand what actually shaped them? And how can you uh, see the ways in which you've been blessed or you have been a privileged, uh, and to use that privilege to serve a, a gap in someone else's story, right? And so, it, it's not something that is, you know, um, that postures us to look down on people as much as it is to understand our mutual mutuality. Right? Mm. And the way you put that made it so juicy, so much a case of, you know, not educate yourself, open your eyes, but it's like a call to bring your own beauty, to bring your own love, to see someone so that you can connect and be heard, you know, to hear so you can be heard, to connect so you can connect to, and that interdependence thing is just so important. And I think in the work we both do, I, I feel like it's not just bias confirmation, basically. I feel like there is a growing awareness of this interdependence and, it makes me excited because people, well, some people, a lot of people in my experience are living more on that basis, are looking for ways to connect. And even though, you know, I read all the things I'm supposed to read for my work that say that polarity is growing in society and tr- distrust is growing. 
But I also know all of these incredible people who are doing work like you, work like I do to connect people to the idea that we're connected to the ecosystem we live in. And so I find hope in that because I think people are starting to get it. People who wouldn't have necessarily cared about this five years ago, 10 years ago, a year ago, it's now present in their awareness that like, what's good for you is good for me. Mm. Yeah. What I, what I do for you, I'm also doing for myself. Yeah. The ecosystem, right? Yeah. And that all it's okay for philanthropy to be, you know, altruism to be kind of ego driven. Like I do this because I feel good about it. Cool. Keep doing it. (laughs) That's great. I actually had somebody the other day who was like, I feel kind of bad because like I'm doing this nice thing, but I'm really just doing it because it makes me feel good. And I was just like, and what's wrong with that? (laughs) It keeps you doing something that you do believe is good, that is aligned with your values. So shouldn't you feel good about it? I just find that a funny, funny concept. Yeah, it's it's almost it's almost like um, but I was telling my uh, my trainer that I actually enjoy going to the gym. Uh, because it relieves stress and it's a part of my practice and all that. And he's like, this isn't supposed to be fun. And, you know, this is supposed to be a moment of stress where it's high intensity and you're trying to, (laughs) but I I enjoy it. And the benefits of it is a better heart, right? And the benefits of it is breathing oxygen. And it's like, why do you, why, why do we live in a society that tries to place a damper on things that are actually beneficial, right? You talk about altruism. Yeah, it makes you feel good. What if somebody sees you modeling that and it lights a spark in them, right? And that spark continues to spread. And that's what we want to spread, right? Hearts on fire, right? In a, in a sense, my uh, shout out to my um, my sister, Danny. Uh, she just wrote uh, this beautiful book called A Heart on Fire. It's about uh, justice in the world and things like that. But mm. we want that to spread. And and we want to see other people like light up with compassion towards helping others or, or standing in solidarity with those who are vulnerable or ensuring that the ecosystem itself is conducive for all, not just a few, but all, right? Yeah. Because digni- dignity itself belongs to all. Oh, Say more about that, because dignity is one of those big words that probably like, most people are like, oh, yeah, what does that actually mean? Because, I mean, you set up the Dignity Museum. We've talked about this to share stories and really do storytelling well, as you've already talked about. But let's talk about dignity. Like, what is dignity and why is it so important to give that to people and for everyone to have it? Dignity, if I could describe it in like a word picture it would probably be the construction of a house, right? When you think about a house, like whatever house it is, you know, where it has like multiple rooms, upstairs or downstairs, or like a basement, all of the the trimmings that you want, et cetera. Like you, you're just like really fascinated about the doors and the chandelier and the, you know, crown molding and the floors and the carpet. And I and we we kind of get fascinated with all of these fixtures, right? And so, like we we place value on those things. And um, the house itself is great, but the house would not stand if it did not have the foundation, right? You can't you can't do anything without the foundation. 
the real value of a house is not necessarily the the constructed part of it. It, it it's the foundation. And I, I normally describe dignity as the inherent worth and value of a person, the found that very essence of a person, the very breath of a person's being. Right? There's a quote that I keep near t- uh, to me often. It says, "Everyone is deserving of dignity, no matter how damaged the shell that carries it." Right? Oh, you know, because. It dignity itself is not it's not about the ex, ex, external it, it's about the intrinsic things right mm-hmm. um dignity is it's not about the the social status or the achievement or the physical attributes it it, it just says a person is worthy because they have uh, breath and that is the foundation that's the foundation mm-hmm. it's the foundation and you know sometimes I argue, that we have we have measured worth in the wrong way. So like we we measure worth ex- on based on extrinsic things. What kind of car you drive? What do you live? What co- what coffee shop do you shop at? What college did you go to? What you know, all of these extrinsic things and we say, "Oh, oh, they have all those things, then they must be worthy. They have status, they have power, they have and it's like what about the people who don't have those things? Do they mean that? Does that mean that they are less worthy? And I argue that we have to start with this idea and talk around dignity and worth with intrinsic worth and value. Because when you start there, no matter if a person is sleeping on a park bench or is the CEO next to the next to the park bench in the building uh, next to the park bench. Uh, you're still worthy. It doesn't matter if a person got their uh, uh, food from a garbage can or they ate at a five-star restaurant, you're still worthy. And once we start with that internal worth and value, we don't have any power to define a person's existence based upon what they do not have. And when you start there, it just levels the playing field. That is dignity. I want to put that out as a question for anyone listening to this to think about, which is, because we all have unconscious biases. It's universal. Yep. It's human. Yep. Yep. And there's nothing wrong with having them. There is a problem when you aren't facing that you have them and working to adjust them. So I would love people listening to take a deep breath and ask themselves, who am I not affording the dignity that they deserve simply because they have breath and life and they are a human being? Like that's, that's a question to sit with because I think there's always some, some adjusting to do because we live in a very judgy world Mm. and it's so easy to get sucked into that. But when you switch on that internal lens where you see everyone as worthy and as equally human and equally Mm. deserving of dignity, how does that change how you approach life? How does that change how you approach who you vote for or how you spend your money or maybe how you you adjust how you live so you can give more or do more because you're like, these people deserve dignity. So I just would like to throw that out there. It's kind of, yeah, it's a question I'd like to leave hanging a bit, but if you have anything to add to that, just to like make the question a bit juicier and give people something to really chew on, feel free. What needs to be reframed Mm. that clears your lenses in which you see other people through. We talk about reframing as being a part of the fabric of social change, right? I normally tell 
the guests who come through the museum. If I didn't have a car, you wouldn't call me carless. If I didn't have a shoe, you wouldn't call me shoeless. Why do we, you know, choose to label people for something they don't have and then punish them for trying to survive it, right? That is been the experience of homelessness, not just in the U.S., but globally, right? And so yeah. I think a part of seeing other people, we have to really wrestle with some of these embedded ideas that you were talking about and really ask ourselves, why? Why do I believe this? Where did this come from? Mm. You know, who taught me this? Was it it was it the wrong thing? And how can I reframe, right, to better see uh, my neighbor, someone who is proximate to me that I haven't been able to fully see and affirm their dignity and worth. There's a quote by John Perkins that says this, we can't give anyone dignity, right? We can only affirm it. Oh, yeah. That's a good reminder. Yeah. When you when you think of it in that way, you're not trying to give anybody anything. You're simply trying to remove the things that's clouding your 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 perspective of a person so you can affirm their already existing worth and value. Mm, thank you for that clarification and that quote, because as I was saying, give dignity, I was like, this doesn't feel right in my mouth. What should I say instead? So affirming someone's dignity. Yeah. And often when we're challenging something that it's a narrative we don't even realize we have because we've all inherited these cultural narratives, these family narratives, some from, you know, ancestral. We don't even know where they came from. Yep. Sometimes it can help, can't it, to sort of frame the new narrative and then see where you're actually not living up to that narrative of like, I affirm the dignity of everyone who lives and breathes because they are worthy of dignity. And then you start to catch yourself just just kind of making like unacceptable thoughts creep in and you're like, whoa, that narrative, where did that come from? So maybe to those of you listening, if you're thinking, okay, how can I affirm someone's dignity? Maybe just write something out as like almost a mantra, as some people would call mm. it. I affirm the dignity of everyone I meet today. And then notice when you don't. And then it's like the trail back to where did that come from? And then you can change it. And then you can change that mm. narrative. You can heal that narrative. You can rewrite that narrative and maybe it will help someone else. Like you said, mm. hearts on fire, model how we can be doing our best for someone else out there. And it'll probably make you feel good in the meantime and probably change the world. And it's okay. Yeah. It's okay yeah. to feel good. <laughs> I love that story about your trainer. Like, why does it have to, why do I have to want to struggle or why do I have to be conscious of the struggle for it to be beneficial? Can't I just have fun and have it do the same thing? <laughs> right. I think that's a beautiful philosophy to hear from you because I do the same. I think, why can't we have fun doing the quote hard work? Because, you know, it's pretty heavy. So we might as well have fun while we're talking about climate change or homelessness or racial injustice or whatever. It can still be some kind of a, a pleasure because then more people are going to want to join in and, and be part of it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Because to your point, the pleasure itself creates the longevity in the work. Right. Yeah. It's what makes because it sustainable, why, right? Sustainability yeah. is about longevity. Yeah. Yeah. I don't want to be a part of a brief work, you know? Mm. 
And, you know, for me, I go back to, I, I love the name of this podcast, The Discomfort Practice, uh, because it's a part of the both and, uh, this constant realization that in order for me to continue to show up and do the work that brings me joy, I have to be uncomfortable in ways and find comfort in being uncomfortable mm. and leaning into that discomfort and growing from that discomfort so I can continue to evolve and be the best version of myself to give myself to this work. Ah, oh, thank you for the beautiful poetic way of saying that. Because we, we sort of touched on that before we started recording. So I'm glad you brought it back up because yeah. it's it's so important, isn't it? And I I imagine you can relate when I say the more I dance in discomfort, I mean, I've been doing it my whole life. I think some of us just come out of the womb this way, but there's an ease in it. So there's an mm. ease in just dancing always with the discomfort, always dancing on the edge, always looking for ways that things can be done better or mm. or how the world can be improved. And then it becomes fun. Back to our previous mm. you know, point about you can actually find it enjoyable. And that might sound a bit kinky, yeah. but it's true. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's I, I, that's poetic too. Um, I've been thinking about discomfort and hardship and struggle in terms of capacity, right? Mm-hmm. Um, where it's like, you know, if you take a, a small cup and you fill it up, right, and it at some point, just using that as a like a, a picture once you get full with the discomfort, the only way to continue to move forward is to expand. And so it expands your capacity for more. Mm. And that itself becomes the dance where it's like, oh, this becomes easier, not because it's not hard, but because in the dance, my capacity expands. Yep. In the in the in the journey through my capacity expands. And one day I look up and I'm like, wow, I struggled through this. I was uncomfortable in this and I don't know how I made it. Well, you made it because you uh, leaned in and you allow the weight of it and the, the processing of it and the work, the grief work, the trauma work, whatever work you have done to expand your capacity. And it's what um, my friend who was a therapist would say, it's not just post-traumatic stress, it's post-traumatic growth. Right? Oh, juicy. And, it, <laughs> and it's a re- it's a reframing of that, that you are emerging from, right? This with more capacity, more, more room to grow, more room to step into your being, right? Yeah. yeah. I mean, it is... I love gym metaphors, working out metaphors, because in order to grow new muscle, you have to break down the old muscle so that it can expand. Yeah, it's it's yes. Think of the thing you hate doing. For me, it was always squats and burpees. And I'm like, I got this (laughs) when I'm in great shape. You're just like burpees. No problem. How many do you want? Yeah. 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 And then your capacity. That's a great point about capacity. And that it's a practice. You know, it's not Mm. it's not one and done. It's it's a practice. It's a, it's a grind. Yeah. It's a grind. Yeah. And I'm one who I love to ritualize things, you know, make them like, 
okay, this is how I do this three times a week, or this is how I do this every day as part of my practice of living the life I want to live, of being the person I really believe I can be. So like getting Mm. to that fullness of your capacity, but it takes practice. It takes training. It takes, you know, Mm. commitment, but it can still be fun. Commitment. Yeah. 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 Something I want to touch on, because a lot of my listeners are in the UK and Europe, and they're probably not religious. <laughs> and I really just wanted to kind of draw out the sweetness of the fact that I, I'm just going to say I'm an ex-Christian, but my values and your values are clearly so aligned. And here we are having a beautifully, not even just civilized, we're not settling for civilized, we're having this beautifully connected, aligned you know, heart open, heart aligned chat with each other, you know, where we share love for the same things to talk about common ground on some tricky issues like inequality and Mm. racial injustice and homelessness. So how can you, because, oh gosh, there is so much polarization. Obviously that has not escaped anyone's notice. Where do we need to just take a moment, take a breath and be like, how can I interact with love with someone I think isn't like me or someone I'm going to face at the Christmas dinner table, you know, crazy uncle Kevin or whatever. Cause we all have one of those. (laughs) How can this be, how can, how can we pick this apart as a model of, you know, like we have so much in common. I have yet to figure out anything we, we don't agree on. (laughs) So yeah. Taking off those glasses well, that say we're not alike in some way to be like, no, we're, I affirm your dignity, you know? Yeah. I was thinking about love and, and the ways in which we have, we talk about love. Sometimes we talk about love in terms of like expectation and prerequisites and like, you know, it's, it's list oriented. Right. Mm. So like, it's conditional, <laughs> you know, and um, I like to think of of love is as defined as what um, Father Gregory Boyle says, love is about receiving. Mm. And I would push his thought a little further to say that love is about being present with people uh, without prerequisites. It's about uh, creating space for people to be whom they are as they are. It is about celebrating the qualities in people that um, may be hidden or overlooked or have been used in ways to weaponize and beat down a person, right? Love is about... um, creating room where a person can say, I feel safe. Love is about, it's active, right? It's about support. It's about solidarity. Love is about sacrifice. Love is about all of these things that um, just has nothing to do with expectation. And so like when I see people, I try to keep all of those things in mind, Mm -hmm. knowing that there's a story that shaped the uncle at the table and maybe there's some part of that that individual that hasn't fully ex- experienced love without expectation or prerequisites. Mm-hmm. Love is transformative, right? You know, when you come into the presence of love, you know, real love, right? 
it can transform a person. It can level playing fields. It can build connection and bridges and all of the things if we allow it, right? Yeah. Um, but you don't do that without being having discernment, right? Uh, and boundaries and protection of yourself. So I'm not saying just go out and and be be wise in the ways in which you show up with it. Because yeah. mm, I was gonna say like. Love is about receiving, but what's the preparatory work that needs to go into that? Because yep. like you said, boundaries, knowing why yep. you're like being intentional about it, you know, like Uncle yep. Kevin at the table has a story, but being like, okay, I'm going to love, but I know that it's probably not going to be easy at times, but everyone has their story. And most people are just projecting themselves onto other people. They're projecting yeah. rejection yeah. or they're projecting yeah. conflict or they're projecting discomfort yeah. with themselves onto other people or they're, or they're projecting discomfort with conflict. So they shut it down by just getting fierce as fast as possible. Just random examples. But yeah, the preparatory work for love is actually as important as then doing it, as practicing it. Yeah. I'm just thinking like a pondering, what are some of the preparatory practices for love? Because this has been a real mission for me this year is just stepping into doing everything from a place of love. And I can honestly say this has been the most transformative year of my own life. And it's amazing to watch the power of that. Just when you step into a room determined to be a channel for love, everything changes. But my preparatory everything. work has been learning to love myself, for example which means boundaries yeah, and all yeah. that stuff. Oh, oh, yeah. I mean, it's the same. It's learning to love yourself. It's processing uh, unresolved trauma. It's grappling with narratives that you adopted that not, might not even be your own inner voice. Um, hearing now and writes this book, the, the inner voice of love. I, I love, um, as you say, like, I, I love reading uh, some spiritual writers that are uh, about liberation and, um, you know, uh, have a contemplative or reflective um, type of narrative where it causes one to to go inward and, and really reflect. And so uh, I think verbalization is another uh, practice that can be like naming stuff mm, yeah and yeah. and and like you know because sometimes it can just like ruminate and go through this cycle and like this narrative and when you name it you give an opportunity to see it for what it is and then you can respond to it accordingly right and yeah. so I think having you know prayer meditation for me uh meditation being still um uh, therapy, right. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, in many forms, you know, all types of things, it, it helps you to remain centered and grounded in your being where you can really do that work. Mm. And I think being fully aware and fully alive in your own sense of self and body gives you an opportunity to see people where they are. I love that. It really paints it clearly. Stick with me here, people. It's simple work, but it's not simple work <laughs> to live in oh, love yeah. because being yeah. grounded in love is world changing. Like you said, love is transformational. Love is alchemizing. Love can transform anything, but being able to send out to be in that much love 
takes a lot of preparatory work. So yeah, I think I want to leave people hanging on that. And I'm aware that I don't okay. have you for much longer because you're a busy person. But I would love to just ask if there's if there's something you want to really leave people with that they could chew on or that they could think about or do. I'm just going to leave that yeah. there. Interpret as you wish and eloquently as I'm sure you will. Yeah, I would really encourage people to realize how much worth and value they have. Um, life is full of hills and valleys and ups and downs. And, you know, sometimes we can find ourselves in life where we have many different uh, inner conflicts as well as outer conflicts happening. And it's hard to find balance and it's hard to imagine that although these things are unfolding and happening that you are still worthy right mm -hmm. and i just want to lift that up for anyone listening that regardless of where you find yourself your social location the challenges that you may or may not be f facing that none of it defines how much worth you have you're still worthy I'm just going to leave it there and say simply thank you for your presence, for your wisdom, for being a channel, for the work that you're meant to bring and the words that you were meant to bring today. I'm really, I'm grateful for the richness of this conversation. So thank you for the work you have done to be this in the world. And thank you for your time. Thank you. Thanks for getting uncomfortable with me. If you enjoyed this episode, follow and like The Discomfort Practice wherever you listen to podcasts, leave me a five-star and written review, and share this with other people. Help me to reach new audiences with this idea that consciously practicing discomfort helps us to individually and collectively discover our superpowers and create a society and a planet where everyone can thrive. Thank you so much to my guests all season. Go back and listen to a few more episodes to hear more of them. They are wonderful humans doing amazing things in the world. Thanks to my team who helped me produce this podcast. And for those who inspire me through their writing, their conversation, and their support. So that's all from me for now. Follow me on Instagram at the Betsy Reed if you want to get to know me a bit better, some of my thoughts. And in the meantime... Stay uncomfortable.